Hey everybody, today I'm concluding my interview with Gary Arndt. Not only is Gary a former extemp coach who has taught national finalists and state champions, he's also a really cool dude, having traveled to over 100 countries in his life. In this episode, we'll take a deep dive into Gary's traveling experiences, historical information, and how it's applicable to extemp. Also, stay tuned for an exciting update about the podcast at the end of this episode. We'll be posting a lot more frequently and with a lot more hosts and guests. Enjoy. Um, it is pretty powerful. I think online, it has really cemented English as sort of the global language. But at the same time, it's allowed for other types of regional soft power hegemons to arise. So the, the most obvious would be Indian Bollywood. We don't see very much of that in the US, hardly at all, unless you're Indian and you're watching Bollywood movies. But it's a really big deal in, a, in other parts of the world. Like they know who the Bollywood stars are and, and everything else. Korean soap operas, huge all over you know, parts of Asia. I was, I was dumbfounded. At, and they're just always crying all the time, every time. I don't know what they're saying because I don't speak Korean, but there's just always someone crying. Um, Nollywood stuff out of Nigeria has become a really big thing. I remember being in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and just seeing you know, people with thumb drives uh, selling music that way for, for like a dollar. Um, the influence of Jamaican culture, particularly reggae, Bob Marley type stuff in Melanesia and like Papua New Guinea was, was shocking. And all that's possible because of the internet, really. That wouldn't have been something that you would have seen decades ago. The, the action movie market is huge. And there's so many crappy action films that never make it to theaters that I would see DVDs for everywhere. Um, you don't even see DVDs anymore. When I first started, that was kind of a thing, but everything's streamed now. So it's mostly pirated, but there's a huge market. You, if you ever wonder like, why did this movie ever get made? It's usually because it's making money overseas. That was kind of fun. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'd imagine how fast did it go? Do you know? Uh, I think we hit 180 miles an hour uh, in the straightaway is our top speed. It's not the speed, it's the acceleration. If you get a nice car like a BMW or something, you can hit 180 miles an hour on a straightaway on a highway, assuming you wanted to try to do that. Or if you go to the Autobahn or something. I was in Germany once in the Autobahn. I had a Ford Fiesta and I got it up to 110 miles an hour and it started just shaking violently. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> it was a piece of crap car. But the coolest thing I ever did is I got to land and get launched off a nuclear aircraft carrier. Really? How was that? Awesome. Um, I got invited by the Navy and the uh, USS Harry S. Truman was doing training maneuvers off the coast of Norfolk, Virginia. And they asked me if I wanted to come and visit. I'm like, yeah. So I drove to Virginia and uh, we, we, f we flew there on a small, it's called an A2 Greyhound, which is a, a small cargo plane that they use for going to aircraft carriers because the wings flap fly up. We did a carrier landing and stayed overnight and then we got launched. And getting launched is a very strange experience because you'll never experience that much acceleration in your life. And we were sitting backwards and, you know, the pilots were forward. We were all sitting backwards and you're in a four point harness around your shoulders and you have to put your legs up because you accelerate so fast. If you don't, your 
feet will fly out. And you also have to put your arms around the, the harness and you know it's coming and you know it's coming and then finally it hits and you're uh, pushed forward and I almost blacked out. It was that much acceleration. And then once you're in there, you can take off your helmet and your goggles and your ear protection and stuff. And the guy that was sitting next to me was a retired admiral. And I, I just looked over to him and I said, I almost passed out. He's leaned over to me and goes, so did I. <laughs> Another place I'm, I'm very interested in was Antarctica. How, how exactly did you get to travel there? And what was that like? A uh, boat. Uh, so 90, 95% of the people that are going to go to Antarctica are going to go from Ushaya, Argentina. That's the southernmost real city in the world. And the ship I was on, I did it in 2011. Uh, we stopped in the Falkland Islands, uh, South Georgia Island, and then Antarctica, and then came back. And it's, a, it's an amazing experience if you ever get a chance to do it. I have a feeling there's going to be some pretty cheap rates to Antarctica in the next year or two. Basically, this season was canceled. You always go in the winter, in our winter, because it's summer down there. And if you can handle a winter in, in Minnesota, you, and the Antarctic Peninsula in the summer is usually a little above freezing because you're above the, the Antarctic Circle. It's really not as cold as you might think. And yeah, it's an amazing. Like on, but South Georgia Island was really the, the, one of the coolest things I've ever done. You land on a beach and it's a quarter million penguins all around and it's loud and it stinks because it's all just penguin poop and dead penguins and they have no fear of humans. So they'll just walk right up to you and check you out. Um, I'll make this a two-parter and I'll start with the negative part before going to the positive one. So we end on a, a better note for this question. Um, but like traveling to all these countries, what's like a very persistent problem you've noticed that, you know, we may, maybe in the United States thought, wasn't as big of an issue, but seeing these countries, maybe. The biggest day-to-day -day problem you see in most countries, especially developing countries, is litter, which is something you don't even think about in the U.S. anymore. When I was growing up, when I was real little, it was kind of a problem, but they, they put in you know, a bunch of campaigns to clean up things, and you don't really see it anymore. Just like people, th you know, if you saw someone throw, uh, you know, a, a wrapper out the window of a car, you'd probably be kind of, you'd notice that and you're like, hey, what, what, what'd they just do? And there's a lot of parts in the world where especially plastic bottles, you will see them everywhere. I remember I was in Brunei and there's this beautiful mosque, really beautiful mosque. It's like the, their showcase, you know, it's on all the postcards and you turn around and there was this big pool of water and it was just literally covered with plastic bottles. And I've seen stuff like that in a lot of places. And you can usually tell the development level of a country by nothing else than looking at the amount of litter. And I, you know, as I was saying, like Ghana, I felt Ghana was kind of like the best West African country I went to that in Senegal, not as much litter. Ethiopia, I saw almost no litter, but like hardly any at all. And, you know, everything I read about Ethiopia is, tends to be pretty positive nowadays that they're really, you know, growing pretty fast. And, you know, they finally signed a peace accord with Eritrea and they've taken care of all that stuff. Um, And so, um, yeah, litter is kind of the, the negative thing you, you always notice first. And then the positive part of that, then, I guess, 
Uh, is there anything that gives you optimism, like, you know, improvements you've seen during your traveling experience? Oh, yeah. Um, the, the biggest thing, and we don't even think about it, has been mobile phones. Mobile phones have completely revolutionized, you know, how people have, have lived their lives. You know, I've, I've read reports about, you know, people in India being able to increase their income by 50% just by knowing what the prices for grain were at, at different places. Whereas otherwise they would, they wouldn't know. So they would only have one person they could sell it to. Well, now they know, well, if I sell it to the other guy in the next village, I can get more money and that's changed everything. Um, it's been quite remarkable how, how much that has changed places everywhere. And I'm sure you've read about the number of people in the world that are in extreme poverty, like $1 a day, has really dropped dramatically in the last 10 years, that the extreme, extreme poverty. And it, it first struck me when I was, I, I told you about I was going to Previere. We went to this village in, in Cambodia that gets no tourists. There's no reason for anyone ever to go there. And we were going through and it struck me that, you know, we, we stopped there to just have something to drink on the way. And there was a guy selling balloons and there was a woman selling toys for kids. And this was a very poor village, but they still had things for, for little things like that, you know, that you, you don't normally associate with, with people who are super poor. So yeah, there's a lot of, lot of progress and a lot of room from optimism. And the thing I always notice is if you, what would you think of the world if you didn't, if you never read the news? And if you never read the news and didn't hear about all the stuff that's going on in the world and your only way of knowing what was happening by what you observed with your own eyes, I would think things are actually, you know, pretty good. And there's a lot of things happening right now that I'm really excited about that I've been following. One is what's happening with SpaceX and Starlink. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Um, read up on this. Read up on this and put this in a speech. So you, you know what SpaceX is, right? The Elon Musk company, they're launching satellites. So they're launching this network of a constellation of satellites that's going to more than double or triple the total number of satellites in Earth orbit. And it's going to be a gigantic global internet. So there's already almost a thousand satellites in space. They just started the beta program and it's going to offer high speed access to basically anyone on the planet anywhere you are. If you're in a city, it's probably not going to be a thing for you, but you could be in the middle of the ocean. You could be, you know, anywhere. And, and you're going to be able to have access to internet. And what, what mobile phones did, I think this is going to have a potential to do as well. The other big thing that I think is huge is the creation of small modular nuclear reactors that are being built. And when you think of nuclear power, you know, people always talk about we need to reduce carbon emission. Fair enough. Wind and solar can only do so much. And 20% of the energy from the United States and almost all of it in France comes from nuclear power. The problem is the design of the power plants we're using are basically from 1947. And they were designed with nuclear weapons in mind so we could get fissile material for that. These smaller reactors are cheaper. And so they, maybe they'll only run 25 to 50,000 homes, but that's fine. It'll be in a container. You never open it up ever. And it's inherently safe so that if it just runs down and, and it's disconnected and it's abandoned, it still wouldn't melt down or anything. So the, the safety techniques that have been developed over the years are much better and uh, they can be assembled in factories rather than on site, which means they can be really, really cheap. You could just, 
install it for a small town or whatever. And uh, it just runs. And then 30 years later, you take it out and put a new one in. I know I said that, you know, I would, would ask, you know, focus on the more positive stuff. Uh, but I, I do think you brought up a really relevant topic, which is climate change. You know, you visited a lot of Pacific islands, um, places that will probably feel the brunt of rising sea levels and that sort of stuff. Have you already started to notice uh, that impact on these different islands? And um, optimistic or pessimistic? A couple of years ago, I went to Tuvalu, which is always the, the, the poster child for sea level rise. And I think it's something you only notice if you've been there over time. I was just there you know, for four days. So I didn't see it. And I certainly talked to people that talked about it. Um, but I can't say that I've seen a lot of it, but I also don't have anything to compare it with. So I'm not entirely certain that uh, it's the best thing. And I haven't been to like Greenland or anything yet either. Uh, if, if you go to certain parts of say Alaska, you can absolutely definitely see uh, glaciers retreating. That, that's something I've seen in many places. Uh, even places I've been back to and you could tell that the glacier is, is not as far as it used to be. Uh, went to Wrangell St. Elias National Park in Alaska, which is the largest national park in the U.S. And there was a glacier there that was so big in the 1960s that the people who lived there, you know, there used to be a mine there, didn't even, they never saw across the glacier. So they didn't know what was on the other side growing up. When they came back there for a reunion, I think this was like in the last 10 years, a couple of them cried because they never knew what was over there before. The, the glacier has gone down that much that they could see it. So wow. I think it depends where in the world you are to be able to witness the, the changes. From your traveling experiences, what have been like your big takeaways? Things that you think you may not have known, like just generally speaking about the world, had you just stayed in the United States? At a certain level, everyone is kind of the same. I mean, yeah, there are, there are big cultural differences and stuff and norms and uh, things that we do that are different. But by and large, everyone goes about their life. They want to take care of their family. You know, we, we tend to think, oh, all the worlds are radical and they all want to. No, no, they don't. They just, they don't care. They just go about their life. Same as we do. Look down the street, people go to work. They, they do what they do. And that's the way it is all over the world. And most people, I don't think, really wish anyone ill. Um, they just want to be able to live their life and do their thing. And that's really what it is. And you don't, that's a boring assessment of the world, but it's kind of true. And it's something you'll never get on the news because they're not in the business of that. They're, like I said, it's, it's what's sensational. And you know the saying, if it bleeds, it leads. And if, if someone's not getting killed or something's not going to happen, you're just not going to hear anything about that place at all. Definitely. I think it's also exacerbated a bit by, you know, politicians or, and they, they build off of, you know, the mischaracterizations already perpetuated by the media. And that's true all over the world. You're seeing it in Turkey right now. You're seeing it in Poland. You're seeing it in Hungary. Uh, you're seeing it in a lot of places. It always helps if you have an enemy you can point to. Exactly. Always. And sometimes we are that enemy and sometimes we're not. I want to move over to your podcast and talk a little bit about history. Let's just start with like a more general question. You're posting every single day on that podcast. Right. Uh, I tried doing that originally with this podcast. 
didn't work out super great. So I just, well, you got to go to school. I don't. <laughs> uh, well, even, even during the summer and, you know, the pandemic, I, I think it's a very, it, it can be a very laborious process sometimes. So I, first off, just mad admiration that you've been able to keep up such a consistent schedule. Um, but with that, you know, what is the research process like for that? How do you come up with these different topics? Um, and I guess just like, uh, what goes into the research then once you have that topic? And Most of them are stuff I know something about beforehand. Uh, I may not, I mean, I, I still have to do research, but I know the gist of what I'm going to say. So right now, as I'm talking to you, I have the script for the show that I'm going to be recording as soon as we're done talking. That's about the canceled Apollo moon program or the, the Apollo missions. So the Apollo missions ended up at Apollo 17, but there was supposed to be an Apollo 18, 19, 20. And so I'm going to be talking about that while we've never gone back to the moon and then future things about whether the Chinese go to the moon. There's, I think, five people left who are alive who walked on the moon. Will they die before someone else ever gets to walk on the moon again? Um, these are things I've actually written about in the past, and I'm just sort of putting them into a coherent. And I have about 100, a show, 150 ideas for shows, and it's kind of an evolving list as I come up with things. And then... I take stuff off as I do it. So I've done a hundred and this will be my 116th show. Um, but <clears throat> a lot of the, the friends I have from my speech coaching days were, were listening to the show and, you know, a couple of them coach extemp and they're like, this is great. Like we can get so many intros and stuff from this because it's a lot of things that, that you, you may not come across. And when I did extemp, it was always cheesy intros like some dumb joke or something. And I, I just had like two of them that I used over and over. And if I was doing it now, I would have a totally different approach to it uh, because there's so many things out there that if you just know about it, it, it's a great way to like introduce a topic or some sort of period in history, which is analogous to what we're facing now that people may not know about. Um, and I especially think that everyone thinks like, oh, this is the most important election ever. It's like, dude, we fought a civil war. This is not the most important election we've ever had. We had slavery. We had almost a million people die in a war in our own country. It's been worse, a lot worse. Did um, you say you, you listened to the show I did in the election of 1876? Yeah. Yeah, that was far worse. I don't ever see us having anything like that. It was the most corrupt thing in the world. You think the media is biased today? You should have seen what it was like when the country was founded. I don't know if you've ever read stuff about like what Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson write about each other. The nastiest stuff. It was all anonymous. Uh, all the, there was no unbiased newspapers. Every newspaper had a very explicit bias up front. And that was that way all the way through the 19th century. And so that's, that's the norm for this country. Um, there, I, I, in fact, one of the ideas I just put down um, for a show idea is something called the Wide Awakes, which I had just found out about. And this was a, milita a militia movement that helped get Abraham Lincoln elected. They were like hooded, you know, hooded people and they would you know, take torches through streets and stuff, but they were like abolitionists in support of Lincoln. And this stuff has happened all throughout history, and we've survived. Um, I'm going to do one, too, on the, the Nyssa riots, which was something that happened in, in Constantinople uh, about 1,500 years ago. And 10,000 people were killed in the city in these riots, and they were fundamentally between sports teams. 
uh, between two different chariot teams. Um, but that's the kind of thing that you can bring that up in a speech and I guarantee the judge probably isn't going to know about it. And it's one of those, oh, I didn't know that. And it's a, it's a neat segue into whatever you want to talk about. I especially think there's a lot from like antiquity. There are stories from like Rome or Greece or, you know, even ancient India or different places that are kind of, uh, you know, legends or big tales that would have be applicable to things we can talk about today. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Do you remember in U.S. history, uh, the era of good feelings? That, that yeah, phrase is about that right now, actually. Yeah. The era of good feelings was basically good feelings because it was a one party state. <laughs> I mean, the Federalist Party fell apart and it was an era of good feelings because there was only one political party. Literally, in the election of 1820, uh, James Monroe ran unopposed for president of the United States. There was no one running against him. And what they call the era of good feelings is basically the era of the United States as a one-party state. Wow. So, yeah, that just, it happens. And we, we, it changes and things always, the, the broader a perspective you take of the world, the more you're not phased by stuff. And it's only when you take a narrow perspective and you're hyper-focused on the here and now and, and, and what is happening today in this issue of this week that you can get frustrated. But the moment you step back and you really take a look at the broad sweep of human history, um, I don't think things will phase you nearly as much. Definitely. There's this one quote, I, th I think something like, hindsight is the best foresight. And so um, with that and, and something you've talked about, I'm curious, are there any historical parallels you know, you've explored in your podcast or you've discovered through your traveling that you think we're seeing today and are applicable to you know, the current situation of the world? Oh, a lot of them. Um, so a lot of people have talked about Trump as being, you know, he always jokes about, oh, I'm gonna get a third term or, oh, you know, he doesn't uh, really care too much about the norms of being the president. You know, there are always these unspoken things that the president just did and they weren't laws but you did it. So for example, a president would always hang the portrait of the previous president in the White House and invite them over for the ceremony. Well, Trump didn't do that, right? He took Bush's and Clinton's picture and he hung them in like this tiny meeting room where no one can see it. And he's did a lot of this stuff that are unspoken things that, that, that you just kind of do. And a lot of people have said, oh, well, this is gonna be a dictator. He's, you know, a tyrant. And I'm like, so if you look at Roman history, and for, for the most part, Roman history is not something you should look at. People say, oh, it's, we're like the Roman Empire falling. It's like, no. And if you understand Roman history, it's like the analogy is not the empire falling. It's the republic falling. And the, there was a guy called Lucius Cornelius Sulla, who there was a civil war before Julius Caesar. And a lot of what Caesar did was because Sulla set the precedent. Sulla became a dictator. Sulla created prescription lists where he just murdered a ton of people and took their money. And when Julius Caesar came along, they said, well, you can't, you can't send troops into Rome. You can't, you know, the Rubicon River is the limit. You can't do that. And his answer was Sulla did it. And basically the precedent had been set. And so I always compare Trump to being like a Sulla. Sulla violated the norms of the Roman Republic. 
but he eventually stepped back and, and went back to being a private citizen. But it was later someone else used what he did and his precedent to then really destroy the republic. And so that I think is the danger is, okay, well, what, you know, let's say Trump doesn't get elected, which it looks like is probably going to happen. He's, he's not going to win. Well, if that happens, what, what will come, up, come from this, from his term, that, you know, even if, 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 you know, the Democrats don't like Trump, they may still do Trumpian things because it benefits them. And that's been the case in U.S. history since forever, right? The president always gets more power. And then whatever party that comes in to replace them uses the power that the previous president took. And it's always been that way. You know, oh, Obama was complaining about, oh, Bush is using executive powers. And then Obama comes, to, to, you know, becomes president and does the same thing. And I'm sure you're going to see that happen once Trump's not president, uh, because that, that just tends to be the way it happens. Definitely. And another example, you know, Democrats using the nuclear option for lower court appointees. If you look at the history of the filibuster, there are so, so, it is the number one case of hypocrisy among all politicians because every time the Senate switches hands, the same people that said, oh, we must get rid of the filibuster. Oh, no, we can't get rid of the filibuster. It will change, you know, 100%. So it benefits whatever side is, is in power or not in power. Always happens. Absolutely. And the Republicans, so, you know, they've had the majority in the Senate. Now it's looking like they may lose the Senate. So, of course, their opinion is going to suddenly now they're going to want the filibuster because they're going to be able to, you know, block things from the minority. And now the Democrats are going to want to give rid of the filibuster because they're going to have control of the Senate. So, always happens. And another thing, I guess, it's a two-parter again. So, the first part is, do you think that there are any historical events that it would be useful for extempers to know about? Um, and then the second part is, do you think that there are any significant current events and I know we talked about a few with like SpaceX, for example. Um, but beyond that, uh, one significant current event that Extemper should know about too. I think that one of the current events would be the United States relationship with Europe as a whole. We kind of protected Europe and held it together after World War II with NATO. Since then, you've seen the rise of the EU and Europe is now kind of its own thing. There's no threat of the Soviet Union anymore. To a certain extent, NATO's kind of a relic. And, you know, this is one of the things that Trump is like, oh, we're going to pull out of NATO, you know, start paying your own way. That is easily something I can see Democrats changing their mind and supporting because the question is, well, why are we spending money to protect Europe from what? From Russia? You know, they're not as expansionistic anymore. Maybe that's what Russia wants, but... The, the role of the U.S. kind of at a big picture level in the world, you know, we were still kind of running on fumes from the Cold War. And I don't know how long that's going to continue. Uh, that might be a big change, especially if we start pulling out of Afghanistan and, and Iraq and these other places. I don't think there's a whole lot of incentive for the U.S. to start sticking our nose in other places. And so the U.S., if they step back from their role as policemen, what then happens? Look what's happening in just this last week in France. Um, president of France, you know, they, they showed the pictures of the Prophet Muhammad from the Charlie Hebdo thing, and then there were these killings in France, and then the president of Turkey saying stuff. That has nothing to do with us. And it, it's so rare that this big thing is happening that has nothing to do with the United States. We're just sitting back and like, 
not me. And there's going to be more and more of that, right? More and more of these international incidents where we're not, it's not all about us. So that's, that's kind of the big thing. From history, I think there's a lot of things. I would, I would if you're an extemper, get a basic rough understanding of like the history of the Roman Republic and empire and understand what the difference is between the empire and the Republic and just get a basic of, you know, understanding of this. There are good podcasts out there. You can listen to like uh, the history of Rome by Mike Duncan and some other ones that just give a, a really good overview of this and understand who some of these people were and what they did. Because I think there's always really good uh, things that you can learn from that uh, type of history. And then also, um, lots of other parts of world history as well. I think that's always a kind of a helpful thing. And what a lot of like the colonial history, what the relationships were between European countries and some of these non-European countries, stuff like that. And especially if you do foreign extemp, here's what I also recommend. There's a site called Sporkle, S-P-O-R-C-L-E. And all it is, is just a list of these games you can play. And one of them is... It's the most popular game on the site. Name all the countries in the world. Do that every day until you can name all the countries in the world. And it's a great skill to have. And if you just can, if you have that ability to do that and you become familiar with the names of all these countries, it's going to be a lot easier for you to process a lot of this stuff. Um, so we talked about Kiribati. I don't know, most people have no clue. Kiribati or Nauru or Micronesia or Antigua and Barbuda or St. Lucia or what these places are. And if you can at least know their names and know where they are and, and some of these things, it, it really is helpful. And I think one of the things that you should come away with from Extemp is not only in a good understanding of politics, but also history and geography. And that's one of the easiest ways to do it. But literally, I mean, uh, just to do this within two weeks, you'll be able to, to, to name every country in the world from the top of your head, which is a great parlor trick. Um, and I've, I've won money at bars doing this. Then, you know, if people are interested in learning more about history or geography, is, um, do you have a few book recommendations uh, for play? Oh man. Um, not head, I'd have to go look. I have, I have a, a huge library of stuff on my Kindle because I don't usually travel with normal books because they're too heavy. Um, but I know some off the top of my head, like different times in history. Like when I was in Japan, uh, the period I read about was post-World War II Japan and like how they, how they changed their country. Uh, God, I can't think of the name of the book right now, but there's different periods like that, where if you can kind of understand how the country worked here, it's something that you can use in a speech. Like, uh, for Japan, I would understand about the Meiji Restoration. That was a pivotal point in Japanese history. It occurred in the 19th century. Japanese basically decided, okay, we see what Europe's doing. We're going to do that, right? And they made an, a decision to industrialize and to change their culture, and it radically changed Japan. Um, what, are the, like, what are the topics people are getting right now? Because I can think of a lot of things, but I don't know if they're even relevant topics. Um, I'd have to look. Uh lot going on. I think Armenia and Azerbaijan, obviously, an important issue. The Belt and Road Initiative in, in China. Um, the European Union and the rise of a liberalism in um, Eastern Europe. In the United States, you know, there's just the general elections questions. 
you know, the post-election constitutional crises and whether or not. Well, all that stuff's going to be out the window in a week. So that's not. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the interesting things I would look at is Saudi Arabia, if you get stuff on that, because Saudi Arabia is a really important player in the region. I went to Saudi Arabia two years ago and it was a really eye-opening experience. Um, I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar with how the government there works, but so the current king of Saudi Arabia, King Salman, his father was Ibn Saud, who was the founder of Saudi Arabia. So the current king of Saudi Arabia today in the year 2020, his father was born in 1875. Do the math. Wow. So the way it worked is Ibn Saud was the ruler of Saudi Arabia, and then his son became king after him, and then it went brother to brother to brother to brother. Because Ibn Saud had a bunch of wives, he had like 50 kids. And so now there's like three left, I think. And King Solomon's like the second to youngest one or something. And he's 84, 85 years old. And so Mohammed bin Salman, who's his son, kind of installed himself as crown prince. At some point, this, this generational shift had to happen. So it happened now. And so he's in his early 30s. So he's a really young guy. And he becomes king. And, and you should learn about that transition period because there was a lot of stuff that happened which was eh, kind of fishy in terms of how he did it. I mean, it was real sort of Game of Thrones stuff. And he cemented himself, and he's going to be the ruler of Saudi Arabia for a really long time. You know, he could potentially be a, the ruler of Saudi Arabia for the next 50, 60 years, you know, depending on how long he lives. So that's going to have a huge impact on what happens in that country. And he has liberalized the country to a large extent. I was shocked at some of the stuff I saw in that not every woman had their, had their head covered uh, when I was there. People were speaking pretty openly. They got rid of the religious police. Women can drive. Things that don't sound like big deal to us, but was a really big deal to them. And they're, you know, if, if they should end up signing a peace treaty with Israel, that's a huge thing. And I think the, the, what's happening in Saudi Arabia is something to really be paying attention to and to get a better understanding of that because that affects Yemen. That affects everyone in the region because they are by far the biggest country and they, they really kind of dominate politics for that whole area. Absolutely. Yeah. Two questions. Uh, the first building off what you said and the second sort of unrelated to that, uh, but related to a few questions back. Um, so this first question, I guess, you know, speaking of Saudi Arabia, you know, we've seen this change in generational leadership um, with Mohammed bin Salman likely to assume the crown. Um, I, I guess with that, you know, do you think that there is hope for the Sunni-Shia divide we've seen happen to potentially, I guess, close off? And then the second question, more unrelated to it, you know, I have a friend uh, who's traveled a fair bit too. She's visited, I want to say, 70 plus countries, so not as much as you, but still a fair amount. Um, and she suggested that I read, and, and just extempers in general, read a travel guides as a way of, you know, learning more about different countries. Do you think that's useful? No. <laughs> because I know a lot of the people that wrote the travel guides and for getting an understanding of the place, it's an absolutely horrible idea. I just, just read a history book. Uh, as far as the Sunni Shia divide, I think that a lot of it's being driven by Iran. That when you look at like uh, Hezbollah and what they're doing in Lebanon and some of the problems in Iraq, that, that is largely being driven by Iran and that Sunnis and Shias have lived in 
you know, there, there's a large population of Shia in Bahrain, in eastern Saudi Arabia, in parts of southern Iraq, and they've lived there forever, right? And for the most part, they've gotten along. And things have just gone off the rails in the last 20 years. And I think a lot of that is driven, I, I, I shouldn't say just Iran. Iran's part of it, but also then you have this uh, Sunni fundamentalism that came from Al-Qaeda and then ISIS, which I should add, a lot of that has been funded not by Saudi Arabia per se, but by people in Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia has been doing a lot of soft power things. So when I was in Jakarta, I remember going to their main mosque and like there was this brand new carpet being installed and that was being installed by Saudi Arabia. And they've been doing a lot of this stuff where they've been building mosques in different countries and trying to spread Saudi version of Islam to a lot of places. Um, I think if and when the government issues kind of get resolved, a lot of that will go away. But I think that's what's pushing it. You have, and I think uh, at least a lot of the support from Saudi Arabia, I think, has been cut off because Mohammed bin Salman is not trying to push that. They've been, he's kind of used a, a, a strong arm to push a lot of the Wahhabists aside. So, yeah, there's still ISIS and there's, they're, they're still kind of doing their thing, but a lot of it is now shifted over to Africa, especially Nigeria, and it's not so much in the Levant anymore. So, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, historically the, the, the Sunni Shia issue was kind of there, but it's kind of been like a Catholic Protestant thing. And yeah, there's obviously been wars and conflicts between Catholics and Protestants, but then, you know, for most of European history since then, whatever, people just, you know, it's not, a, it's not a big thing. And I think that'll be the end result. The question is what happens between now and then. Do you think that, you know, the divide we've seen, given that it's relatively new, I guess, then, would you say it's more of a holdover from? It's not new, it's ancient. But um, these ancient things can spring up out of nowhere. Two other good examples. One would be Rwanda, where you saw this horrible genocide and neighbors started killing each other when previously they, they, they were living together, no problem. And then all of a sudden everyone just went crazy. 800,000 people were killed. And, you know, you, you, at the end of it, you're like, what the hell happened? And the other is Yugoslavia. When that broke up, you had Serbs and Croats. And I got to tell you, having been to all the Balkans, there's basically no difference between Serbs and Croats. And they will hate me for saying that. Both of them will. It's the same freaking language. The difference is really one of religion, that, that Serbs are, are Orthodox and Croats are Catholic. But you know, I, I remember being at a dinner in Montenegro and there were some Bosnians there and some Montenegrins and everyone else. And they're all talking to each other, speaking the same language. And I interrupt and I just say, what language are you speaking? And they couldn't agree what the name of the language was because the Bosnians called it Bosniak, the Serbs call it Serbian, the Montenegrins call it, they all have their own language, but it's the same damn thing. <laughs> it would be like, you know, someone from Britain, Canada, America, and Australia all having a conversation but the Americans are like, no, I'm speaking American. No, I'm speaking Canadian. No, I'm speaking Australian. That's priceless. <clears throat> but, the, but those examples of people just like they live together for the longest time and then something happens and then you have this massive amount of bloodshed between people that have, you know, been, been neighbors and friends for a long time. Definitely. So I guess then like the more apropos phrasing of my previous question is, do you think this recent, I suppose, re-sparking of like the Sunni Shia conflict or 
the increasing intensity of it is a byproduct of, you know, like holdovers from the Soviet era. And alongside that, I guess more of like a, a broadly philosophical question. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily fair to ask you about this, but what do you think then is the solution to once again subsiding these differences and these conflicts? I don't think it's a Soviet thing at all. I think it's, like I said, if anything, it, you started to see it again after the Iranian revolution. That's, that's really when it started. If anything, like when Iraq was quote unquote socialist under Saddam Hussein, uh, you, didn't, you didn't really see much of this at all. Uh, your religion was kind of put to the back burner. Uh, so it's that kind of, I mean, you can trace things if you want to go back to Afghanistan and, and everything as to how a lot of this started, but because one thing always leads to another, but I, I don't, I don't think it's a Soviet thing at all. Cause if you like, look at central Asia, if you go to central Asia, like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, they are nominally Muslim, but they're about as Muslim as Sweden is Lutheran, which is to say on paper, that might be true. But when you just, most of the people there, it's, it's very secular and they don't really care too much. And that is more of a, a holdover from the Soviet days because they were officially atheists. So you don't see as, as much of it, but, and, and what, as far as what the solution is, uh, I think it's one part uh, eliminating funding for for each side. And I, I should add, you know, the, the sides are being drawn, I think, to counter Iraq, which is, again, what I, why you're seeing Israel and a lot of the Gulf states now signing peace accords, because they have a common enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, I think it's... Yeah, pretty much. Um, I want to take it back to, you know, history... Are there any, you know, fascinating, I know we talked about Solo, for example, but are there any other fascinating political leaders that you think would be useful for people to know about um, or just applicable in today's context? Oh, tons of them. Um, man, it depends on what context. It's hard to do it kind of in a vacuum, but there, there's like... Let's, I guess, uh, um, you know, just, just pick a few of your favorites and maybe, you know, apply them to a few different regions or countries. Like if you wanted to look at um, Roman emperors, um, Marcus Aurelius was probably one of the best Roman emperors. He was a reasonably good guy. There's like good Roman emperors and there's bad Roman emperors. And like, you can almost make a list. Like when they died, they were either declared a God or they were uh, given demnatio memori, which means that they were stricken from the book. So all their faces, all their names were, were written off things. So Marcus Aurelius was a good guy. His son, Commodus, have you ever seen the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe? Yeah. Okay, this is, that, that is not at all accurate. But basically, that's Marcus Aurelius and Commodus, and Commodus was hated. And um, that happens a lot. So one of the things is if someone was born into the purple, which is what it's called, if you were if you were born when your father was the emperor and it passed down to you, uh, you were usually a horrible emperor. Uh, Caligula, Nero, uh, Elagabalus, a lot of these people that were young when they became emperors were just the worst emperors. And the ones that were relatively older tended to be uh, pretty good emperors. Um, I think there's also some interesting things from like Canada. Um, we tend to forget about Canada 
it was easy to do, but you know, why, why isn't Canada part of the United States? And, and that's a, just, you know, just doing a little bit of research on that question will bring you up into um, some of the Canadian history, which most Americans are completely ignorant of. And uh, you'll learn about, you know, Sir John A. Macdonald uh, and uh, Mackenzie, who was the prime minister, he was prime minister a really long time in the early 20th century and, and through World War II. Um, how the U.S. Canadian relationship? I usually when people always got a, a question about Canada, that's the one you'd put back in the envelope because you know no one wants to talk about Canada because it's never really an interesting subject. But it can be, I think, if you know enough about the backstory uh, behind. You know, one of the, one of the things when I go to a country, the question always is, why does this country exist? Which, which is is true of every country. It's true of the United States. It's understanding how we became, why weren't we a British colony through the 19th century? I mean, Australia was, Canada was, why weren't we? Um, Why did Haiti become a country? Why did Australia become a country and all these things? And that gives you, if you can just try to answer that question, it gives you a background to understand who the characters were to help make that happen. Like I talked about Singapore. I really think you should understand who Lee Kuan Yew is. Because Lee Kuan Yew was the father of Singapore. He made it happen. And he passed away a few years ago. Uh, but he was an extremely pragmatic guy that made the Singaporean system. And the Singaporean system works. Um, you can kind of take it or leave it, but you got to know who he is. And like I said, in Japan, you should know about the Meiji Restoration. Because that set the the path for Japan into the 20th century, laid the foundations for what happened in World War II um, and everything else. Because I agree with you, understanding history is what makes talking about certain subjects so interesting. The one intro that I always used for talking about China, and I think it's still applicable today, is the idea of why, why didn't China conquer the world? Because every time you hear about some invention, it's always like, oh, it was invented in China first. You know, gunpowder is in China, papers from China. Everything was in China first. They were sending out ships when Columbus was trying to go to America that were far larger. They were going to Arabia and India. They had traders. And there's some people that believe they may have even come to the West Coast of the United States, that they may have come that far. By all rights, they should have done that. And what happened is, during the Ming dynasty, there was an emperor that basically said, okay, we're done. We're good. We don't, we don't need to, to go anywhere. We don't need to, to visit any place. And it kind of put the kibosh on uh, technical development, on exploration and trade. And there is a pretty good analogy to what happened at that period in Chinese history to what happened under, say, communism with, with Mao Zedong. And what you're now seeing is a reversal of that in China, where they are very aggressively uh, engaging with the rest of the world. And I, I think looking at, at, at those periods in, in Chinese history to what is happening now is really interesting. And, and you're, I'm sure you're familiar with like the border disputes they're having with India. Yeah. Dumbest border dispute in the world. Absolutely meaningless hunks of land because it's in the Himalayas, there's no resources, there's no nothing, nobody can get there, it's cold, no one lives there. It's all about national pride. That's really what it is. And if you look historically, China has never been a real expansionistic 
country, even you know back in the, the imperial periods. There's, if you look at a, a, a map of China, there's like a set, you know, it's bounded on one side by the ocean, it's bounded by the Gobi Desert, it's bounded by the Himalayas, and it's bounded by the Tianxin Mountains kind of in Central Asia. And that's always what China has been. They've never really gone beyond that. So a lot of this little stuff on the borders right now, it's all just, uh, you know, trying to increase their prestige. So with, um, I, I know you just talked about how China isn't very expansionist, but what about, you know, regions like Xinjiang or uh, Tibet? They've always felt that that has been independent and it's always kind of, there have been different periods of time uh, where it has and hasn't been under Chinese control. But those areas have been about the, the furthest uh, level of their expanse. But it's always been the case that the vast majority of Chinese population has been in the East. And if you look at a population density map of China, that's where the, the, there's this kind of swath in the Eastern part, you know, not far from the seaboard, where the vast majority of people have always lived. That's where they live today. And it's extremely fertile. And then you have these regions in like Tibet uh, and, and Western China that are very low density population, and that's kind of how it's always been. But if you also look at a topographic map of China, you can see why those regions ended up being controlled by China and why they didn't go any further, because they really can't go any further. Up into Manchuria, you run into you know the taiga, and it's just solid forest. Another really cool thing to once you get starting to Chinese history is to read about Genghis Khan and the, uh, the Mongol empires, because that's fascinating. And that had a huge impact everywhere. I mean, that, that just completely flipped, you know, not, not, not only in China, but in India, in the Middle East, and even Russia. You know, you had the Golden Horde that actually went as far as Poland. And, you know, people forget that. They had a huge impact on, on culture and, and history in, in not only Asia, but Europe as well. Well, for sure. Um, I guess we'll, we'll conclude with, you know, two questions I think would be appropriate to ask you. So the first is, you know, is there anything you'd like to plug on this podcast? Yeah, um, my podcast. Like if you're, a, if you're an extemper, subscribe to my podcast. It's a short daily show. You know, it's like, it's about the length of an extemp speech. You know, they're like seven to 10 minutes long, um, but, but not structured like an extemp speech. And the goal is something every day you learn something new. And a lot of these things I've talked about, I've either done episodes on or I'm going to do episodes on. So if you just want a little thing where you can learn about um, like Roman rulers or, you know, an emperor or stuff like that, I'll be eventually doing stuff on those shows. Uh, I just did my, my show yesterday was on the history of Antarctica. And most people don't know that Antarctica has a history, but you know, there's things and you could learn something about some of the early explorers, what they did, um, where you can work something into an intro, depending on if you can find an analogy to something. But in order to be able to do those intros, you just need to know stuff. And the purpose of a podcast like this, it's not in a classroom environment. It's not a textbook. You just get some of this stuff every day and, you know, just make a mental note of it. And when you are, you know, coming up with a speech, it's, it's just things that you can reference. Definitely. Podcast name is Everything Everywhere, right? Yep. Awesome. And then the second question is, is there anything you'd like to leave with extempers? Um, you know, just like a, a piece of advice, I guess, about this activity 
about, you know, maybe something that you've learned through all your traveling and, and through this podcasting that you think would be useful for them to know, not only as extempers, but just as uh, globally literate and informed citizens? You know, I've, I've had a lot of companies and stuff. And if, if I knew someone was a serious extemper or a serious debater, I would probably hire them on the spot. I think that doing this activity is by far, you know, I don't know, but I don't know about you, but I always found that certain classes, especially if it's like, you know, history or civics or whatever, were a joke. I mean, literally, when I was in college, I would write papers and I would just write extem speeches. Same format, you know, intro, pop up, you know, same thing. I had three different points and everything. I'd get A's on everything. So if you can do this and you take this activity seriously, you don't have to have a national championship or anything. Just take it seriously. You're going to do well because you are already at a level, not just beyond most high school kids. And, and, and you know this already, right? You, you know that you're, you're dealing with stuff and you're talking about issues that no one else in high school cares about. You're, you're already above what most college students care about. Um, you're going to be so far ahead of the game, it's not funny. I got three degrees when I went to college. I, I got a triple major in math, economics, and political science. The political science part was just to, grade, to uh, pad my grade point average because I could take any poli-sci class and just ace it because of all the experience I had doing speech and debate. And uh, yeah, I mean, kudos to you for, for doing this because it's uh, probably the best single thing you can do in high school. You know, if you do sports, you will eventually be old and flabby and out of shape. But if you're doing extemp, all the stuff you're learning will be with you your whole life. And it's not just that, but it's also just a way of thinking. And that, that's hard to put into words what that is. But, you know, the fact that you're talking to me and I did this over 30 years ago, but I'm still able to have a conversation with you about this stuff uh, is kind of indicative of, of what it's going to do for the rest of your life. So if you made it to the end of the podcast, thank you so, so much for listening. And now, as promised, the big reveal. Over the past few months, I've been working together with a team of seven other incredibly qualified extempers, including four other invitees to the MBA Round Robin. Now, a lot of these people have agreed to help me out with the podcast in the future, which means you can expect guest hosts alongside me, as well as completely new people we'll be interviewing in the future. Beyond that, though, the most exciting update is that we're going to change the very structure of this content, taking it away from more general content lessons and applying it more specifically to extemp speaking, and delineating how exactly you can apply these concepts and bits of knowledge to your next extemp speech. Good luck, and enjoy the rest of the season.